Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is Maria Promajori. E. Prof P, it's wonderful to see you. We've just been gossiping for more than an hour online, as it happens, about our incredibly exciting and fulfilling lives. But it's a long time since we met, and uh, that's to my loss. But it's also not a long time since I've been reading your work, which is much to my gain. And I wanted to start by asking you what is currently dynamizing, preoccupying, troubling, interesting you. Well, thank you for the question, and it is wonderful to see you and speak with you again. What is dynamizing for me right now, I would say, in terms of work, is writing and collaboration, and I'll come back to that. What is preoccupying and perhaps disturbing me is, as I have uh rehomed or remigrated or returned to the U.S. since last we did this from a very long and wonderful stint in the Republic of Ireland for about nine years. The state of politics and higher education and the intertwining of both of those, along with many other implications of the political situation in the U.S., have been certainly preoccupying and concerning. And I will say um, just Partly because of timing, I'm living in the state of North Carolina, and next week is our primary for the presidential election. And I did a training last night with a group that is concerned with voter access. And so my plan on voting day next Tuesday is to be assigned a particular voting location where I will observe any challenges to voting, any illegal illegal activities that are preventing people from casting their vote. This is a nonpartisan group, but also they are particularly choosing areas where voter suppression, and particularly voter suppression among lower income and African-American populations has been witnessed in the past. And I will tell you, I read the newspapers. I feel very current on the things that are happening. When they describe some of the things that we might witness that we would then need to report or fill out an incident report or contact the national hotline that it's linked to, was actually, it, it, it surprised even me what they said we might see um, happening in terms of sudden roadworks that would get in the way of people accessing voting locations. Yes, these are some of the things that were presented as, this is something you might need to fill out an incident report for just to make sure all of this information is being gathered. Yes, indeed. I see the the shocked look on your face, and that shows you um, I, I, I remain, unfortunately, more naive than I should. But anyway, so that's something I'm excited to be doing because I believe very strongly in democracy and in people having the right to cast their vote. So that's concerning and disturbing and something I want to be more active about. Mm. And before we get on to the collaboration issue, I wonder if I could probe you a wee bit about that, Prof. Not so much voter suppression, but one of the things that's preoccupying me, because despite my accent, I am a U.S. citizen. Namely, and just despite, just as despite your accent, <laughs> you are also an Irish citizen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's preoccupying me is the discourse about the ages of the presumptive nominees when this actually goes to the general election in November. On the one hand, and I'd love your your reaction to this, I appreciate the concern with having a madman in the chair, namely Donald J. Trump. And I appreciate the concern with having someone in the chair 
who does not seem either to have all his faculties. Even And I appreciate the concern with the Senate, for example, being full of one kind of American person, which is an older white man. And both of these guys are, are white men, or one of them is sort of an orange man, not in an Irish sense, but in a physiological one. He may be that too. <laughs> he may be that too. Here's the the but. I don't like this opposition to the idea of the elderly being able to make contributions. And I don't like this attempt to find every slippage of the tongue by Biden an indictment, given that, frankly, if you go back to the Anita Hill testimony in 1991, maybe, or 89, or whatever it was, yeah, about Clarence Thomas's confirmation, the guy made verbal slippages all the time then when he was chair of the Judiciary Committee. So I'd just like to get your view on that question, which is not about voter rights, but it is about what is going to happen in a very short time. And that Yes, yes. And thank you for the question. To me, the the sky, the large, the, the, the big picture issues here have to do, first of all, with the U.S. media and the desire, as always, always they do, to have a horse race and to do these false equivalencies. So old in one sense means old in another. I actually am applauding a little bit of the campaign rhetoric. I suppose you would call it where Biden is now saying, I may be old, but I don't have old ideas. And that's what the other guy has. He wants to take us back to 1955, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So these are not the same thing. Um, I agree with you that Biden has historically been not well spoken. We know he had the stutter as a child. We know this is a part of his persona, a part of his um, his public presence. I also find that no one is in terms of bigger picture issues calling out this concern over Biden's age as a sexist and racist problem as well, because the fear is, what if Kamala Harris were to become president? That's a backdrop as well, subtending a lot of this discussion. Yes. I think Biden, I, I am a big fan of a contributor to the New York Times and a person who has a podcast called Ezra Klein, Wonderful, intellectual, um, very thoughtful person. He has talked about his belief that Biden is certainly highly capable of doing the job of president, but that doing the campaign for president is another question and has maybe the is maybe the reason why people are are so concerned is he is not campaigning well. But he's also talked about perhaps having an open convention. And he has a couple of podcasts. And so I would recommend anyone interested in this, including yourself, to go back and listen to his podcast on what the Democrats might do if they had an open convention. And it is simultaneously thrilling and incredibly fear-inducing, fear-provoking. So I'll just I'll just leave that there. I think the I want to say it might even be Nikki Haley who is running against Trump for the Republican nomination, who said the U.S. Senate or the U.S. Congress is the most privileged old folks home that we have. It is absolutely in terms of age and racial demographics and gender demographics unrepresentative and highly problematic. So like you, I find myself torn, I think. And the other element here is the fact that from day one, the Biden White House has undermined Kamala Harris, briefing against her constantly for whatever reason. I I think that's fair. I don't think she has been given an opportunity 
to show what she can do. I, I would agree with that. I think that's fair. So anyway, thank you for that. Um, let's get on to this collaboration question, because uh, along with a lot of scholarship that you've produced on your own, you've also been involved in some very notable collaborations with edited books, co-authored books, co-authored articles. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on the nature of collaboration, because it's something that in the soft social sciences and the humanities is still a bit of a rarity. I think that's a good point. And thank you for pointing out that I have a sort of longer history of collaboration than I was even thinking about, because I was I was thinking about the last several years since we've last spoken, sort of the types of projects that I've been working on and what I've been doing in terms of co-authoring and co-editing work. So I have, I will say, found a very, what I think of as successful collaborative writing history, I don't know what to call it, trajectory, with a former PhD student of mine, um, Porrick Kerrigan, who is now an assistant professor at University College Dublin, UCD. And he completed his PhD at Maynooth University, where I was teaching and and co-supervised him. Out of that work, we have just managed to produce several articles. We're co-authoring a book project as well that I can tell you a little bit about. And I will say it has been incredibly exciting for me to see new ways to write. I I, I would wager that when we started writing together, I was a lot more like the PhD supervisor. And he relied on me in certain ways to do that. And early on, Cork would would um, put his hand up and say, well, I'll do the reference list, you know, the busy work, the craft work, the grunt work. And now I think that has changed significantly, which I appreciate. We divide up work and then edit each other's parts. We talk through things. We uh, write together in a sense by talking and um, works very good at, at recording things. I'm a little bit more have to do things with the digits on the, on the keyboard. So it's been a different process for me because like, like you're saying, I do think um, humanities and if you say soft social sciences, I'll, I'll take it. Scholars are, are trained to think that our PhD and our research and our contribution to the world is supposed to be spectacularly original, wiping away everything that's gone before. This is how you make your name. This is how you become a star in this putative academic star system that we we do have. And I always found that did not sit well with my approach to things and the way I think, because I come up with what I think of as the stronger ideas that I have by reading other people's work and taking it seriously. And one of the things that frustrates me the most is to see younger scholars who either completely ignore prior work because it might be a challenge or give it such a light touch that it's not, it's, it's not giving the ideas their due. And I constantly, when I read manuscripts for presses, when I mentor junior scholars, I'm constantly saying, you want to be able to take on this person's strongest argument and say why it doesn't go far enough or it's wrong, or you agree, and yet you have, those are the kinds of things I'm saying all the time, because I really do believe it, that that's, that's giving respect, and that's doing the work is to engage with other people's ideas. So I feel like even my research and thought process is very much collaborative, that I get my best ideas by having something to respond to, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think it's a wonderful account of how these things can work. And I love the idea of a rebalancing of the power differential between the advisee and the advisor that you've described. And um, 
So, we, so we've had a really what I would call a successful collaboration. We've published a number of articles together. In fact, I have to look. We've done um, a piece that you you had mentioned that you had read, which makes me very happy. A piece that came out in feminist media studies called "Brand Royal: Meghan Markle Feuding Families and Disruptive Duchessing." in Brexit era Britain. And I'm really proud of that piece because it kind of brought together, I'd say, um, both um, Porrex and my fascination with celebrity culture and royalty. How can that not be sort of fun? At the same time, taking on really serious issues around racism and British identity in the Brexit era that, of course, we all know erupted around um the marriage of Meghan Markle to, to Prince Harry. That piece came out, I want to say, just after the famous interview that uh, Harry and Meghan did with Oprah Winfrey. And it felt like what we saw in the press in the U.S. and in Ireland and Britain at the time was hitting on a lot of the things that we had brought out in the article and very specific instances of the way the media treated Meghan Markle. I'm also really proud of that piece because um, a young Black British journalist emailed me to Zoom. I want to say this was now during COVID when I was back in the United States to talk about the article. And I think it was um, very useful. I'm now, of course, I need to look up her name because that's that's scandalous. I'm not remembering her name, but it was really helpful to know that it was having having resonance. Um, yeah, and one um, of the things I I think your article came out in a a couple of years ago or eighteen months ago now, but was presumably written a couple of years earlier. I haven't lived in Britain, thankfully, since 2019, but I one thing I do remember is the obsession with her white father. And he was both treated as a buffoon, but as a reliable source. And her black mother was rarely, if ever, written about. Absolutely. And the representation of her upbringing was somehow that she was straight out of Compton. Her father worked in the media industry. He was a... Um, uh, cinematographer or not a set designer but he was she would she would go with him to work and be on set filming television programs and things and her mother was is a therapist and a yoga teacher these are not you know these are not classic very low income you know low wealth inner city south central la um that is not what that family profile was and that was the first thing that came out of um came out in the in the british british press about her and yes you're absolutely right about her her father he became one of the one of their obsessions tracking um you know with photography and why he wasn't uh attending the wedding so it was um it was ridiculous i mean one of the things we focused on a lot that I think is still continuing was the constant comparison between Meghan Markle, uh, Kate, Catherine, or however she wants to be known now, Kate Middleton, and Diana Spencer, right? The sort of princesses that Britain could point to in recent memory and who had they all have skinny legs, but who of the three had the best ones? And they were always Kate and Diana triumphing over Megan, who was seen as a disaster for always trying to copy her, you know, dead mother-in-law posthumously. So it it really gets into some deep pathology, I would say. It's certainly not just British culture, but it is it is definitely deep pathology. Actually, Pork and I are currently working on a piece for a book collection that's on the crown in Bridgerton. And we're talking about, I think it might be called something like royalty and romance at the end of the Elizabethan era. And our premise is that while both of these series appear to be 
questioning the remit and the role of royalty. They are both ultimately ratifying that whole project and doing so primarily through <clears throat> romance and marriage. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you you know, saw the crown at all, it opens with Philip and Elizabeth's marriage and it closes with Camilla's and Charles's wedding. So it sort of bookends the whole series that is about how terribly hard it is to sustain royal marriages and how utterly important it is to the work of the royals that they are presenting themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, presenting themselves as an intact family unit for the nation. My um, my difficulty with this is like my Colombian friends who won't watch narco novelas. I couldn't watch The Crown, even though everyone tells me it was brilliant. Bridgerton, it, Bridgerton, right? Um, I did watch a few episodes, and it, it it struck me as a kind of Obama version of the British costume drama where race is present all the time but rendered invisible and irrelevant to show that anybody can be anything. That was my amateur take. Yeah. I think that's fair. I also compare it to productions like Hamilton and Six mm. okay. doing various things, rewriting history with the casting of racially diverse figures in Bridger Bridgerton is very interesting. And that's what I've been focusing on when I'm giving away all of the secrets of the article before Ooh, it will come out. Don't give up too much prof publish first, publish <laughs> first. Just give us a few little hints. So I'll just say it's important that none of the characters of color in the Bridgerton series are characters of color in the novel, in the novels. And so there's the introduction of those characters, including Queen Charlotte herself, who is not in the novels and has become so important to the series that she got a, a season that was a prequel. That was just her story. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm going to be saying some things about that. And you, you will recall that because I'm at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, the nearest large city is Charlotte, North Carolina, named after Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. And there's a interesting controversy about a statue of Queen Charlotte that different groups in the city think of differently. And so there is a strong African-American affinity for this statue because of the speculation that Queen Charlotte had African ancestry. It's probably quite unlikely that she did, but there is a very lively discussion about it. As with Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Lively discussion. Now, Prof, without wishing to prevent you from going down your collaborative pathway, I wanted to remind listeners if they knew about it or if they or if they didn't about a very important collaboration that you engaged in about the Irish in the United States. Another book. It's going way, way back. But it's an important contribution because one of the things in all my years living in New York and L.A. that amazed me was the way St. Patrick's Day became so inclusive in the sense that so many people identified with it, including African-Americans, Latinos, Latinas, etc. And very complicated in the context of the struggle for the Irish in the United States to become white and in terms of Irish-American racism. I wondered if you could cast your mind back to that book, oh, the look on your face tells me that I've asked the wrong question. <laughs> no, it's a long time ago. You mean the book about Irish and African-American cinemas? I didn't mean that one. Okay. Actually. Um, I meant... You're attributing something else to me that I did not write. 
Is it a book or a book chapter that you're thinking of? There's a, a book it's collection a book called in Us. It's a book Diane... chapter and it's, um, you know, <laughs> reaches for notes. It's called Papa Don't Pre- Preach. Yes. It's, uh, it is. That was in the book collection called The Irish, the Irish in, in the U.S. But, of course, you also co-edited a book about Irishness and African-Americanness and cinema. That was the first book that I wrote was the Irish and African-American cinema, where I made arguments about cinemas that were quasi-national cinemas sort of dealing with troubled national identities and ways that they had adopted similar genres. For example, what Irish and African-American cinemas do with, say, the gangster genre. There was also a chapter about troubled pregnancy and that and the, those those films coming from both traditions and that ended up i think d- something that i developed into the papa don't preach so I, i'm chapter. sorry for getting myself the, no no the, that's the, the monograph is the one where you do the interesting counterpoint of spike lee and neil jordan right yeah 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 so it's it's sort of um similar themes and similar genres um for example, the uh, the elevation of the gangster, and particularly the gangster as a um, sartorial um, figure, and uh, prized within their communities, um, that comes also obviously out of uh, sort of U.S. traditions that deal with Italian gangsters uh, as well. But that kind of really became more important later, right? The earliest gangster films were Irish gangs in New York, in, in the U.S. Indeed. Cinema. But once they become Italian, they also become models for Latin American gangsters and African-American gangsters. Idealized Italian figures, Scarface, the second yes. version, being the classic iteration of this for people, I think it's fair to say, yeah? The stereotypes of Italian-Americans become models of how to be a cool bad guy. It's La Bella Figura, correct? La Bella Figura, right? That tradition in Italian. You know, the the well-dressed man goes goes very far in projecting an image of strength Mm -hmm. and control. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the Papa Don't Preach really, I think, um, came out of... um, Obviously, the Madonna song, but also the way films treated um, unwanted pregnancy. And I'm thinking of the two film titles now that I was most interested in at the time. Um, and I actually, I'm going to, I'm, of course, this is stuff. Why, why are you asking me about old things? My brain, talk about Joe Biden. Um, my brain. Is, <laughs> um, so just another girl on the IRT by Leslie Harris was one film. So this was about a young African-American girl who hides her pregnancy um, for months and months and months. And the, um, Irish film um, that was the essential um, in dialogue with this um, film. The Snapper, is it? Rockabye Baby. Well, The Snapper would be another one. Hushabye Baby, excuse me, by Margot Harkin. So, yes, so there's more than one film like this, but where Mm. um, the physical constraints of pregnancy that it is a you know growing entity whatever you want to call it are um denied in terms of because of the social injunctions that the um the women are in fear of and certainly very different cultural contexts you know irish catholic ireland and um and just another girl on the irt sort of inner city brooklyn but it was um about younger women's sexuality because yes they and we have it you know it's 
Lolita is not about a girl's sexuality. Is it about, it is about Humbert Humbert, but young girls are, you know, sexually active and like having sex. And I'm always frustrated by the, the disturbing, you know, sensitivity around that. Let's figure out how to articulate that. It's maybe becoming a little, maybe the Swifties will do it for us. I don't know. Um, it's interesting. That piece makes me think about the controversy over Anne, Anne Frank. And the idea that her father, I think it was, censored the parts of the diaries that are about desire and self-pleasure and how, as part of the wish that is understandable to protect children from sexual exploitation, one can also step into the role of denying them sexual self-expression. Absolutely. And I think that fear, I I, I absolutely um, endorse everything that you just said. I feel like, at least in U.S. culture, and not just at the moment, but for a very, very long time, the idea of girls having sexuality is equated yeah. with exploitation because nobody can see beyond like how could it be anything but that in such a patriarchal um male dominated culture and i do understand the risks i do understand the risks there but the uh, i mean the case in point something i've always wanted to work on i have not gotten around to working on yet is the manson girls Mm -hmm. Right. The Manson girls were this quintessential example of young runaways, often abused, mistreated and or rejected by their families. They find this pathologically maniacal guru who offers them, amongst other things, certainly a family unit. Maybe that was imposed upon that group, that cult by the legal system, they called it the Manson family to make it sound even more frightening, but there, the, a sense of group belonging and yeah. also sex, sexual freedom. He did have sex with them. I don't know what his sexuality was, straight, gay, bi, pan, power hungry. I don't know. I mean, the man was insane. I'm not trying to, to suggest anything other than that, but the Manson girls were so frightening to American culture because they sought out something very different from what we're talking about in terms of this protected, they, you know, they wanted to be free from their family um, influence um, and yet have a, a group to belong to and be sexually expressive. I've always felt like that's what they were punished for. And they're constantly um, pitted against the again a figure i'm very very interested in the bizarrely beatified murdered pregnant madonna right sharon tate sharon tate who was married to roman polanski was pregnant and was one of the victims of this terrible terrible attack yeah all young women exploited in different ways um, and obviously, yeah, no, the violent death is one of the most horrific, you know, moments culturally. But there is something about the comparison between the Manson girls and Sharon Tate that I've always been interested in. Yes, because she was monumentally sexualized in all her screen roles. Often against her, that was not actually her um you know, her choice. I've been doing a little bit of work with her. One of the other ways that I've been working collaboratively is through um, audiovisual essays. And I'm working in a group, we call ourselves IVERN, the International Video Essay Research Network. And we've been working on a collaborative piece um, that I would like to say just a, a little bit about because it's 12 people collaborating on um a Bollywood film called Om Shanti Om, where we divided it into sections and we all did individual short essays on our piece of the film. We're not quite finished with it yet, but I'm absolutely thrilled to be working with them on that. But in the context of the video essays, I was doing a little bit of video essay work 
on Sharon Tate. And there is a fascinating interview you can find with Sharon Tate and Hugh Hefner. I think I found on YouTube. And he is, in my view, in this interview, kind of outs himself as um, something very disturbing. I know a lot of people would hold him in high esteem, and he certainly got many of the um, discussions going about sexuality in the United States. Some people would say he was completely sexist because of the Playboy Club, et cetera, et cetera. But their interaction, it is so clear. He's asking her about nudity in films, and you can see she's like, this is not what she wants to be talking about. This is not what her idea of um, being a performer and an actor has to do with. And the, the tension between them is, is fascinating. Anyway, you can see that on YouTube. Yes. I, We've I'm not sure I'll be far afield from where we started. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be watching it because I, I, I do find him deeply complicated or problematic. Now, Prof, I really am going to stop leading you down paths and after this question. But I want to toss us back a quarter of a century when we were both six or seven years old. And actually, you are younger than I am. But you co-edited a really path-breaking volume representing bisexualities, subjects and Cultures of Fluid Desire was the subtitle. So this comes out in the mid-1990s. It has a number of uh, contributors, and some of it's, uh, quite a bit of it is about visual culture. Uh, some of it is about literature. Some of it is about relationship to epistemology. It's a path-breaking volume, as I say. I wonder if you could put yourself back to the 90s and that volume and what you guys were seeking to do and how you view it today. Thank you for asking about that book. I co-edited that with Donald E. Hall. Um, and there are a number of really important essays from important writers and thinkers in there. I think at the time, my view of what that book was doing is different to what it is now. And I would say at the time, it was the era of really the flourishing of queer theory and queer studies. And I'd say Donald and I both felt like there was a lack of attention to um, less binary definitions of queerness. So I'm certainly not trying to suggest that we've 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 hit maximum production and should do no more thinking about lesbian and gay subjectivities. But at the time, we felt like that was dominant to the ex to the extent that those with more fluid gender and sexual identities were not quite at the table or in the conversation. And so I think I would say I thought about it quite politically and intellectually at the time that we were going to address uh, what people, you know, would call biphobia, that it's that even within uh, queer communities and queer theories, same-sex desire was being thoroughly investigated, but there was something seen as very problematic with sort of multiply gendered objects of desire, if that's the right way to put it. So uh, th that's what I think we, we thought at the time. And I certainly was working mostly in visual culture and thinking about how you visualize and visually represent desire that is not fixated on a particular object choice. So it isn't always, you know, the male gaze, the heterosexual male gaze looking looking at women. So those were some of the, the, the things I was concerned with. I feel as though as time has passed, 
I give ourselves, everyone in that volume, a little bit more credit on the epistemology side that you mentioned, that ways of knowing about desire and sexuality were really at stake in that book. And I think that came up in a PhD thesis defense that you and I were both involved in. And that's how you and I started. That's how you and I became friends because we started talking about and asking the candidate. I was asking if in that thesis, bisexuality was a way of seeing the world, was visualizable in cinematic terms. What might that what might that mean? I'm not sure it was completely adequately answered. And how could you? You could go on and on and, and talk about that forever. But that was that, so. So the more I think about that book, it isn't about film or television or literature, but how modes of representation can enable difference to be to be expressed. And, 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 and as I have said to you and, and many others, representing bisexuality sounds like a quite narrowing title. And I understand the limitations of the terms. At the time, bisexuality was the, the terminology used. And, and it's clear it is nominally in, in terms of naming quite binary to say bisexual, but the understanding of that term at the time is, is perhaps now what people say pansexual uh, is much more multiple and, and spectrum ish than it, than it sounds. And if it sounds like I'm making an apologia for the past, I'm, I'm really not. <clears throat> I don't think you could begin to question sort of singular same-sex desire without opening up some issues around um, non-binary identities and trans identities, certainly not well articulated, certainly not um, put in the foreground as they are now, but I, I really welcome that body of theory. In fact, I was just looking at a grant proposal that was talking about um, sexualities and I was sort of saying, I think you really need to promote and put closer to the top in terms of the theoretical grounding um, trans theories. It's not sort of another add something and stir. And that's what we were trying to say <clears throat> about um, theories of bisexuality. It wasn't sort of, oh, and here's another one. It's here. It's here is a category and identity and an experience that disturbs and opens up and questions the paradigm we've been working with in queer studies. And I absolutely believe that non-binary and trans work is now doing that for all of us in very productive ways. We just took a wee break there because Chinguri Naranja Orange, the podcat, was being a little demanding. And there's nothing wrong with being demanding, by the way. When we broke off for a moment there, um, Prof. Maria, we were talking about the Representing Bisexualities book and the importance of trying to broaden out some definitions. And you indicated the way in which these notions of identity have, in a sense, been not subsumed by, but enriched by a lot of trans dialogue over the last few years. And I don't think anybody could doubt the significance of those contributions and the way in which questions of sexual identity have become crucial to so many disciplines, so many lives, so many social movements. One of the things I wanted to ask you about before throwing things over to you, I've got a couple more specific questions. I Hello, there comes another podcast. That said... You're beautiful. And a couple of questions I wanted to ask you before throwing things over entirely to you to conclude our conversation, if I may. The first of these is you start out life academically as a hard-nosed political economist. That's the gal who does her undergrad in the US 
and her master's in Britain, and then you become a fluffy film studies person with your doctorate. Now, I'm not wishing to make you binary, but that's a bit of a binarism, or is it not? I didn't perceive it that way in the process of migrating from political economy to film and gender studies, film and media and gender studies now, I suppose. I was interested in, in the broadest sense, why people do things, why humans make mm. the choice to do. And so is the cat behind you, by the way. The cat behind you is also interested in why you do the things you do. <laughs> he is completely ignoring you and me with his back turned to us, but making sure that he's in the frame. So this is his, <laughs> that is his superpower, being present <laughs> without having to work too hard. <laughs> so I in fact pursued a PhD in economics. I did not complete it. Um, and I was, when I studied in Britain, the, the master's degree that I did was in development economics, what they called development economics, about what at the time was called the third world, which we might mm. call the South now. And I did my master's thesis on the example of Chile and whether or not the Pinochet regime or Pinochet, I suppose, as they would say, had in fact succeeded in the economic goals that the Chicago boys set for them, because of course the economists from the University of Chicago had advised that regime about what it needed to do. And this was a little tiny master's thesis, but I concluded it really had not succeeded on its own terms. And it was simply a continuation of keeping an economy dependent on a natural resource, copper for export to be assembled and put into products in what at that time were more advanced economies with you know, the good jobs and the manufacturing jobs and so on. So an extractive industry continued because that you know benefited um, the powerful countries that were allies and supportive of Pinochet. So I think you can see the the questions were as much about politics as economics. And when I pursued, uh, a, you know, did a couple of years of PhD work, it was, it was, it was just not, it wasn't that it wasn't answering the questions I had. It wasn't allowing me to ask the questions I wanted to ask. And so mm. I mm. went back to the drawing board and indeed began the PhD was in women's and gender studies and the cinema and visual culture sort of grew Um out of that initial interest. So the politics have always been there in various forms, whether formally or more in terms of social and culture and, you know, gender and sexuality and race, the politics of visibility and visuality and all of those things. So I don't see it as completely binary. And I will say increasingly, with work in media studies, that training in what you might call the social sciences has come in very handy in terms of the types of analysis that is more and more, I won't say demanded, but more and more uh, prized. So when I was doing my PhD, it was acceptable, and I'm not sure it is anymore, to do an entire dissertation or entire book that's film analysis. And now I think we've really moved beyond that and people are doing audience studies, production studies, industry studies, and a lot of those bring in methodologies from social sciences, whether it's quantitative analysis in addition to qualitative analysis, mm -hmm. interviews, statistics, those things are more and more, I think, folded into film and media studies. If that Does that resonate with anything you've seen in our field as well? 
Oh, I think that's true. I think the unfortunate element in it is that the political economy Marxist tradition is often left out. And because I subscribe in part, but only in part, to that tradition, uh, because I'm very wary of leftist functionalism, you know, where domination is total and the state and capital control, I get very concerned about that. There's a flashing light that says ES. Oh, it's asking me to confirm the fact that we're speaking Spanish. That's funny. Um, which uh, I can confirm we're not. In any event, <laughs> I, I worry about the the lack of attention to the classic questions of structural power that anybody who thinks about the fucking Chicago boys is going to be aware of and the way in which what those people claimed, and as you know, they were courtiers at the feet of Milton Friedman, was that, as Friedman would have said, oh, I'm liberal about everything. I just uh, need to experiment with the levers of monetary policy. And if that means torturing and murdering and stealing the children of leftist women and men, then, well, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's nothing to do with me. So, you know, I worry that the, the wealth, the richness of that tradition is is being ignored at the same time as I admire the desire to do material ethnographic studies of production and of uh, reception. But there is this thing called capitalism. <laughs> there are some ways of understanding it that I think are quite valuable. But I would never see them as being in opposition to questions of identity. Marxism is one more identity, along with many other things. And uh, so I... Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. I, I, I completely understand what you're saying and agree that the strong, I mean, there's, there is a lot of work that is more methodologically diverse and informed perhaps than that tradition of textual analysis that yet is lacking because it is not putting that work in a theoretical framework. Well, that's the a worry. Whereas with much of a textual analytic tradition, apart from a pure formalism, was driven by questions of ideology, of gender identity, sexual identity, racial identity, and the representations of those things in cinema and in other media forms. So it's strange to me that that gets dropped out often with some of this other work. Anyway, enough of that. My last question to you, Prof. And then, as I say, I want to throw it to you to take this in any direction you wish. Is about yoga. Because this is something that is part of your biography. It's part of your professional biography. It's not held as a mystery to us. It's sometimes listed in the bio data about you in your publications. Could you share with us a little bit about your yogic practice? Well, thank you for the question, because again, it is not something that I can treat or do consider as, as a binarism. It is in fact woven into everything I do. And I would say is perhaps, I won't say singularly, but is highly, is very, very responsible for making me a decent teacher. So I'll say about yoga, um, I've, you know, trained extensively. I teach yoga. I practice yoga on a regular basis. I'm teaching here in Boone um, weekly and once a month. Uh, at a yoga studio here, Neighborhood Yoga. I'll give them a plug, a wonderful place. Mm -hmm. And what I, what yoga has given me, all, because we could talk about this all day, what yoga has given me that has so informed my work as a teacher and a scholar, a university person, whatever you want to call it, um, a knowledge worker, whatever, uh, is the embodied nature of learning 
and the importance of the collective energy around learning. I think I mentioned to you briefly earlier that I'm teaching an asynchronous online class this mm-hmm. semester. Right. This time. I've always said I am a person who loves the classroom and I strongly believe that what happens in classrooms can only happen there and is quite unique and is about the place and the time that is, is, is being confirmed for me as I teach this async online class that is going well, that I'm enjoying, but the experience of the classroom is, is far preferable. And what I learned um, from my yoga practice and learning about practicing and teaching yoga as a collective practice is to understand the energy in the room, to respond and react to the energy in the room. I remember teaching screenwriting years ago at North Carolina State, and I walked in the room and I sat and I said, we're all going to take a deep breath and be quiet for about 30 seconds or a minute. And I saw the students all look at each other and they had never, this was not what they were expecting. And we did that. And then we got on with the class and I thought, yeah, that worked because just asking people to be conscious of their surroundings, to be conscious of where they are, are they in a position to learn? We, we understand students need to have food. They need to not be hungry in order to learn. Um, to have some kind of infrastructure in their lives that enables them to carry on with intellectual work when they're not right with us in our presence. And so I think those are all lessons that really came home to me from the yoga practice, that it's your state of mind, your state of being, that all sounds very woo-woo, I know, but that enables you to learn and learning is an exchange and I'm always learning from my students but I'm only able to do that if I get us all to be paying attention to one another very um, somatically and sort of existentially. I hope that makes sense. Now, I think you've dodged the granola woman bullet there very well. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, this is again about a question of materiality as well as spirituality and they connect and I just had the and great collaboration experience. and collaboration and, and, and collaboration and seeing learning as something that can be mutual, can be two way. And one of the great privileges for me, uh, and this must have been true for you in Ireland in particular, when you first arrived, is that when you're in a new country with different kinds of people, many of the examples that you might rely on may not work, but they have examples that they can give you that will work. Absolutely. Now that's a very good, that's a very good point. And you only find that out if you're willing to admit you don't have it all inside, right? That it's sort of, I need your help. What would be, you know, I mean, that, that, that is what people now want to talk about as, you know, peak teaching or the best pedagogical practice, but it's quite hard to do in in reality and in practice to say you know as much if not more in this area than I do what I can help to do for you is to organize it in a way that brings us forward in this you know this subject or this area or whatever it is we're talking about yeah no I love that I love that I love nothing more than my favorite thing um, in terms of, you, you know, a- after admonishing students um, for not paying attention to the work that's out there that they need to be responding to, is to give them a stronger sense than they had previously of what it is they're bringing, of what it is they're saying, of what perspective of what knowledges that they have that they might not have seen before or might not have had validated before. And you see that change, not necessarily immediately, but over the course of some time that I'm sure you've had this experience that you spend with a student or a mentee or a junior scholar 
And you keep saying, no, you're, you're saying this, and that is quite different from what's being said. And it's really original and new. And you can do that because you have this perspective and you come from this place and you've noticed these things. So bring it. I, that's, that's why I do it. Beautifully put, Prof. Now, the podcast has torn down a towel from its drying place twice while we've been chatting since we held the chat up in order for him to be centered in my life. Yeah. He's looking at me with his golden-eyed gaze. What this means, I, of course, will never know, although one of the ridiculous promises of artificial intelligence is understanding what cats mean. Have you come across this wonderful play? I have not. It's fantastic. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, good fucking luck, dude. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, one of the reasons we love them is that we can't understand them. I'm going to quickly pick up the offending towel. Whatever you need to do. I'm going to hang it over my head in the hope this will deter His Majesty from further incursions. But, um, Prof, the last thing is... I think with cats, it's just if it's up there, it needs to be down here. It's pulling it down or knocking it off, right? Those are the cat height things. No, point taken. He has a, a weird thing with sandals and things like that, too. I don't know. Anyway... I wanted to conclude by inviting you to raise some issues we haven't discussed or perhaps go back to themes we have mentioned, stuff you'd like to add. Oh, goodness, that's a tough one. We've talked about so much and almost everything. I think maybe I'll just conclude um, with... A couple of things I'm working on that I think do exemplify what I'm, why I'm thinking so much about collaboration and writing. One piece I'm actually, it's hard for me to say this, but I'm I'm pretty proud of, um, is a piece I wrote for a book called Women in New Hollywood that came out in 2023. It's a chapter uh, called Feminism, O-Tourism and the 1970s in Theory. And what it talks about is the fact that film theory, and particularly because of the advent of feminist film theory, and particularly that very famous article, Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, that theory became, because of all of the things we did, this is nothing on Laura Mulvey. I I know her and she's wonderful. And this is not about that. It's everything that the field did promoted auteurism in theory (laughs) so that we had correct. The, the star system is part of the, the academic star system is part of what I'm talking about here. And it, I believe does us a disservice to continue that model of academic work. So I, try to gesture towards different ways that our work already is collaborative and could be more collaborative. And one of the things, one of my um, colleagues in film studies said they particularly liked about it was talking about the publication of a journal article or a book chapter is collaborative. There are editors along the way. There are copy editors along the way. There are people developing covers and talking to you about typeface. And I'm not trying to make this sound trivial. All of this Mm. to me, the production of writing. So even in the most single authored modes that we occupy, we are working with others all the time. So that's a, a particular favorite of mine. And then I'll just say, I have just submitted the manuscript for a collection that I'm co-editing with my colleague, Stephen O'Neill, on Kylie Minogue, (laughs) which is long overdue because um, I I will have to, I will admit I was not a fan when this project began. I was interested in her as a pop culture figure. And now I'm quite interested. I'm much more interested. So we have that book 
coming out. Um, it should be from Bloomsbury. Let's just say we've submitted um, manuscript 11 chapters, so 11 contributors. And then I am currently working on a book with Porrick Kerrigan, who I mentioned um, earlier, called Waking the Hirschfeld. And it is an oral and archival history of an early LGBT Q would be stretching it because of the era. It wouldn't have been a term used then, but um, a center in Dublin um, that existed from 1979 to 88, roughly. Um, quite pathbreaking for all the research that I've done. I have not found, it was called the Hirschfeld Center. And it seems to predate any Hirschfeld Center, for example, the example that was established in Germany or other places, it is co-equal co in time or maybe even ahead of some of the U.S. LGBTQ centers developed in major cities. And it's an ephemeral, it's an ephemeral archive. It lasted for, what, nine years. We've interviewed 50 people who either attended dances or film screenings or political events there, or who helped run the place, or who maybe walked by it and knew it existed. And so we're really trying, um, we're, we're developing that into a book and hopefully a podcast series over the course of this year. And it's work I'm really excited about. It's queer history. I am, neither of us is trained historians. I will, I will acknowledge that right up front, but we're learning a lot from, from this project and hopefully it will be really meaningful and of great value when we get it when we get it turned back out there to the public from whence it came. Thank you so much, Prof. Maria. It was wonderful to speak to you, to learn from you, and I've very much enjoyed our conversation. I've also appreciated going back to reread your work in preparation. So it's been great. Many, many thanks. Thank you. We did too much work for that. But thank you. Thank you for taking all of it seriously. It is it is um, hard to remember all of those um, all of those pieces from back then. But when you bring them up, I know why I was thinking about them then. And I know how they've informed what I'm thinking about now. So that's really valuable. I appreciate your assiduousness as a researcher. <laughs>